This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. So trauma feels like... um other words like anxiety, we were talking about this before, it's become this catch-all term that feels so vague and so broad. So as an expert at the intersection of trauma and theology, can you define for us what, what you mean by trauma? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including the Honorable Charles Qualls, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening, Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023. For more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. This is the CBF Podcast Conversation. Nestled in the heart of the gathering place at General Assembly in Atlanta. All right, our guest is the Reverend Dr. Kimberly Wagner. She is the Assistant Professor of Preaching at Princeton Theological Seminary and the author of Fractured Ground, which will be the main focus of our conversation tonight. Kimberly, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's so exciting to be here. So for those that aren't familiar with you, walk us through the 
myriad of denominational experiences and how they have formed you theologically. Absolutely. So I, I like to say I'm a bit of an ecumenical mutt. I was uh, raised first in the Methodist and then the Presbyterian churches. I uh, went to a Methodist seminary, went to Candler School of Theology at Emory for my MDiv as a covert uh, Presbyterian. So I'm actually ordained in the PCUSA church. I pastored a Presbyterian church in Virginia for four and a half years um, and then uh, went back to Emory for my PhD. And then ended up with the Lutherans, um, which my mother says made my grandfather, who was a staunch Lutheran, passed away when I was four years old, very happy. She's very convinced he had a hand in it. Um, so I worked with the Lutherans up at Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago for four years, and now I'm at Princeton Theological Seminary, which is Presbyterian and reformed by history, but is such an ecumenical place. So I like to say, you know, between the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, I just speak grace in three languages. So I heard you describe yourself yesterday as an ecumenical mud, but I decided I wasn't going to use that terminology. No, feel free. No, I just feel like hearing a a male Baptist calling a female fellow clergy an ecumenical mud might come across. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So yesterday during your talk, you shared your diverse background as a middle school teacher, a local church minister, and now a seminary professor. Walk us through your vocational journey and what inspired you to do your research around trauma. Yeah, so one of the things is I've always felt called to be with people. I am a raging extrovert, but even more than that, I just love hearing people's stories, being part of people's journeys. I love watching people discover things. So my first call was to education. I decided when I went into college that I wanted to teach, and I wanted to teach science. Uh, So I actually taught uh, 10th grade biology and 8th grade earth and space science. Um, And during my time in the school district, I, I was in a pretty rough school district where a lot of my students were being actively recruited for gangs, were in gangs, um, were being arrested out of my classroom, out of the school. You know, I was dealing with having to uh, worry about educational stuff for students who were struggling, who didn't have a stable home or family life, and really got to be the, I was the teacher that they came and hung out with after school. And so I heard these kids' stories, these young people's stories, and started to understand, I think, a little more, a a side of trauma that I never knew. When I went to seminary then, right after that, um, I ended up doing, uh, serving for two and a half, almost three years as a uh, student chaplain at a maximum security women's prison uh, here in Atlanta that is now closed, uh, Metro State Prison. And it was there that I had the chance to really engage more people's stories, right? And the longer I was there, the more uh, they put me in wonderful spaces to really encounter these lovely troubled children of God who had these rich but very trauma-soaked stories. Um, Then when I went to church, I thought, okay, it's a, a, you know, middle-class PCUSA congregation in Virginia. I'm going to be fine. There's going to be no trauma there. Uh, Very wrong, obviously. Everywhere has that. But also, this is a congregation that very much had a lot of trauma historically that they hadn't dealt with and hadn't talked about um, and hadn't ex- hadn't really even heard discussed in church. So by the time I got to my PhD, I, I actually resisted writing on trauma, um, but decided finally I was really curious about mass shootings um, and uh, preaching. 
And so I decided I was going to solve this whole thing with one seminar paper, right? One 30-page seminar paper. And when I went to go do the research for it, there was nothing. And so like any good PhD student, I just complained to anyone who would listen. And they all said the same thing, well, maybe you should write it. And all of a sudden, kind of all those experiences up to that point started kind of fitting together, making sense in inspiring me to learn more, right? I didn't know it, but I knew I had, I had witnessed it um, all along the way in my career. So um, my work now is uh, largely in preaching and trauma. Um, the book you mentioned is on specifically preaching amid mass trauma, so thinking about things like mass violence, natural disasters, public health crises, um, but I continue to develop the work out on it because it feels like every day is a new case study for me, so unfortunately. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative, The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So trauma feels like... um you know, these other words like anxiety, we were talking about this before, it's become this catch-all term that feels so vague and so broad. So as an expert at the intersection of trauma and theology, can you define for us what, what you mean by trauma? Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I think you're right. One of the problems with defining trauma is it is broad, and we have made it broader. So it is broad in that trauma is the subjective experience of a potentially traumatizing event, right? And so um, any, and, and that covers a broad range of events, everything from mass violence and natural disasters to individual traumatic death, loss, or illness, all the way to um, historical, social, cultural uh, trauma such as racism and white supremacy, LGBTQIA plus discrimination, sexism, right, uh, poverty, all of those experiences. So it already has kind of a broad, broad space because trauma is that that response to that. 
However, we often like to use it as a kind of uh, emphasis, right, a hyperbole. Oh, I ran out of coffee this morning. It was so traumatic. I once had a student come up to me and not even thinking about my work in trauma. They were like, oh, my gosh, you won't believe it. I got home from class the other day, and the dog had peed all over the carpet. And I was like, oh, why does this dog continually traumatize me? And I was like, um, can we calm? Can we talk? You know, but um, I think understanding trauma, that trauma at its core has a disorienting effect, right? This is what distinguishes trauma from just something being hard or grief, all of which we need to attend to. I don't want to disregard those in any way. But not all grief is trauma, but trauma often includes grief, right? Um, and so trauma is this, this naturally disorienting thing that happens, and it's a fully embodied experience, right? So it happens in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits. Um, and it happens when we can't make sense of what has happened. We can't actually integrate those experiences into our previous lives, into the stories that we tell, um, into the ways that we understand ourselves and our world and God. And so it leads to this kind of disorienting effect. And so for me, trauma has this, um, there are of course these degrees of trauma, but really at its core is its capacity to disorient um, and, and, and create kind of this, and I talk about narrative fracture, right? Create this idea that we cannot quite put our stories and our ourselves together in the wake of the event or experience. So the effects of trauma, much like things like anxiety, they express themselves in a diversity of ways, both individually and collectively within an organization like the church. Um, you know, congregations are, are fascinating organizations to get our heads around it. Yeah. What we were talking about before, I uh, just wrapped up my doctoral program, which my dissertation looked at these relational complexities within an organization like the church. So how are the effects uh, from trauma most commonly expressed within a church? That's such a great question. Um, so I want to name kind of three ways that it, it expresses itself. The first is often you get these... Uh, the, the, the community starts to have these kind of sub-communities. I call them these sub-communities of the equally wounded. That oftentimes when a traumatic event impacts a community, it doesn't impact everyone in the same way or at the same degree or in the same level. And so what often tends to happen is those who are a little bit distanced from the experience, right, they tend to pull away or not know what to say or not know what to do. And we actually have biological data, brain data that says like we have this natural allergy to pain and suffering. And so you end up with these sub-communities of the equally wounded that then overly bond, if you will. Like they're very valuable in some ways because they support each other, they care about each other, but it's easy for them to pull away from the community. And so you can oftentimes get these kind of divisive sub-communities. The second way it often shows up is that the community breaks apart along these fault lines of proximity to the event. So I like to think about when traumatic experiences happen, it's like concentric circles, right? Like when you throw a rock in the pond and the waves go out. And what often happens is that communities start to peel apart along lines of proximity of impact. And we certainly saw this in the whole country, much less the church during the pandemic, right? Those communities most impacted lived in those center circles, and those who were less impacted pulled away and asked questions like, well, why do we still have to talk about this? Why can't we get back to normal, right? Whatever that is. And we can talk about getting back to normal later, because we all know that's a fallacy. But... 
Um, the third way that it impacts, and I think this ties directly into your wonderful work, which is that oftentimes trauma highlights, exacerbates, and deepens pre-existing anxieties, conflicts, difficulties, challenges, right? Because what happens is those little things feel bigger under the weight of trauma. Those little anxieties kind of open up. And then on top of that, it's sometimes easier to focus on those little anxieties, right, than it is to actually focus on the trauma itself. So it's easier to fight about pee location or the kind of flowers we put on the communion table or what translation of the Bible we use in worship than it is to fight about the, or, or than it is to contend with not fight about but to contend with the trauma of um, the changing of the church the changing of the world um, the bigger discussions and traumatic realities that we are facing as churches and so I would say those are kind of they're all connected to ways that our relationships get disrupted and ultimately collective trauma has this force of, of, of disrupting our sense of narrative identity and our sense of together, togetherness and, um, and shared values so yeah. and that you know, it's essentially you think about it, is all of us have a different physiological and psychological response to to all of these things, and then you you throw everybody together. Yes. And many people experience church one day a week, right? Uh, and we wonder why we have the challenges we have with them. Absolutely. So the thing about trauma uh, is that if it's not processed, it expresses itself in unexpected and unintended ways. And you were just alluding to that uh, moments ago. How have you seen uh, that dynamic at work within congregations? Yeah, um, all kinds of ways, right? Um, two, two in particular. One is um, when something shows up that, that, that sparks um, a past trauma that hasn't been fully conceived with or dealt with. So, for example, um, I worked with a congregation who... Uh, when the Newtown mass shootings happened, were super responsive to it. They were in Virginia. And I'm like, what's going on? Do we know people up there? Are we friends with people up there? What's happening? And all of a sudden I realized that the response was coming from the fact that a bunch of them had been directly impacted by the Virginia Tech shootings. And so this, and they'd never dealt with it, never talked about it, it had never been addressed in church. Um, and because they weren't directly in the proximity of um, Virginia Tech, they, they felt like they couldn't bring it up. And so when the Newtown shootings happened, it showed back up with a vengeance. I lied, I'm going to give you three examples. The second example is um, I have a friend whose church uh, burned down. And uh, one of the few things they were able to save from the wreckage, from the, from the ashes, if you will, was a communion goblet. And she noticed that every time they used it in church, it... It, communion fell off and people got really upset and it was really hard but nobody could name what was going on right and all of a sudden it occurred to her wait a second I am holding up literally one of the few objects we have from the previous church and whether or not like people cognitively were able to name like this is hard 
they were like that pervasive shadow of trauma showed up. And what she ultimately ended up doing is working with her congregation to rewrite communion liturgy appropriate to the sacrament and to that chalice, which was beautiful. The third example is um, a lot of times I think trauma shows up as anticipation of trauma. So people always, every time I speak, which I love to do, I love to work with clergy and communities, um, I often will get asked about kind of anticipatory trauma. Like what about if we see the storm clouds coming at us? Like how do you deal with that? And a lot of times what I tell folks is I don't actually know that I believe in anticipatory trauma because usually what that is is past trauma that hasn't been dealt with that is being forwarded and projected onto a future event. So whether that's the hiring of a new pastor, whether that is, um, I've seen this a lot with churches with clergy women, right? Oh, we had one woman pastor and she she was terrible, right? Like, because we've had one, we anticipate that if we have a woman appointed or we hire a woman as um, our new clergy member, that she is going to be problematic. And so oftentimes we see these kind of past traumas um, showing up in the present. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, a model ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then a model ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. CBF is full of wonderfully gifted, theologically trained, and immensely experienced ministers. And, and while many have training and proficiencies in caring for individuals and families through shared trauma, uh, most have not been trained to be social psychologists. So as we talk about the immensity of all these things, um, what are some of the practical things that they can put into practice as their congregation experiences shared trauma? Absolutely. Thank you for that question. Because I think a lot of times uh, pastors get, and clergy, and you know, ministry leaders get put upon to kind of all of a sudden step into the role of social psychologists or or community, you know, counselors in ways that they were never trained to do. And so, one of the things I want to say is, um, the work of most clergy is, unless you are trained as a therapist or as a counselor, is to accompany and to refer, right, and to lean on the other resources to create a web and a network of resources for your community as they are dealing with 
whether it is a mass traumatic event or a trauma that has resurfaced um, or just dealing with the trauma of past conflict, right? Um, so to make sure that you don't take, I, I talk a lot um, about not, these days about not taking on the superhero position or the savior position, um, and instead I invite folks to kind of step into more of the midwife position, right, accompanying communities through pain, experiencing it with them, but no midwife can get up on the table for the birthing parent and say, like, you relax, I'll take the next half hour of contraction, right, no, no midwife can do that, um, and also, a midwife knows when to call in a medical professional if there is there is trouble, right? A different medical professional, I should say. And so, you know, midwives are really wise about who is the web of, of, of support. And so that's the, that's the first thing I want to say, just to kind of name that. As far as practical things, I think one of the, the best things that we can do is cultivate theological language that is able to hold the hard. That I talk a lot about living in this tension between brokenness and hope, between death and resurrection. And a lot of times I think our tendency is to swing all the way one way or all the way the other, right? And what would it mean for our preaching, for our teaching, for our pastoral care, for our, our conversations to include this kind of in-between space, um, to live in this theological tension? And the beauty is, and you know this, they, they all, we all know this, the Bible is full of these stories, right, that don't fully resolve. Right? And we oftentimes want to resolve them. What would it mean to hold space open and to practice doing that with our congregations and hold that in trust for them? They can hold it in trust for each other until they need it. Because a lot of times I think we nurture inadvertently sometimes theological language, theological ideas um, that... Um, that are so kind of one or the other, right? That to live in that tension gives them tools that even if they don't need them yet, they have them. So that's kind of one thing. The other thing is talk about the hard stuff, you know, when, when the opportunity presents itself. So if the text has an opportunity to talk about violence, uh, be careful, do it in trauma-aware ways, but make it clear that these things are not outside the bounds of the church or the bounds of God's love and God's compassion and God's care. Because so often I think by avoiding the hard, um, whether it's a hard topic, whether it's ambiguity in the text, whether it's holding space open with questions for God and modeling what it means to ask God a question that we can never or we struggle to know the answer to, that, that by doing that we help folks and if we avoid doing that, if we make all those things taboo, when the hard thing happens, when the trauma rears its ugly head, when the pervasive shadow comes in, all of a sudden the congregation and the community may feel at best, like this is not the right place to work on this, and at worst, that any time they have something hard or traumatizing or they are experiencing trauma that is somehow not welcome at the church and not welcome by God, right? That they are somehow outside the bounds of God's love. Compliments for, for catching the uh, calling midwives medical professionals earlier because the sponsorship of the podcast is actually the Midwife Association of America. I love that. Yes. <laughs> All right, last question to wrap up our time together, which... I have about a gazillion from the book that we're okay. not going to have a chance to get No, to. that's all right. So and I've been talking too long, too. I give, you ask one question, I give you like a 10-minute no, no, answer. No, no, we'll just have to schedule another time to get together. Perfect. I love it. I love uh, it. So kind of uh, 
in, in short, COVID-19 impacted ministers in a very unique way. Many were forced into distance ministry while picking up a lot of roles that volunteer leaders used to fill, all while also personally dealing with everything that came with the pandemic. Yeah. And about the time that everyone started to come back in person, ministers were ready for a break. Um, the pandemic certainly is a unique trauma for ministers to, to care for the churches, to care for themselves too. But, but other traumas are coming in our lives and in our congregations. What can ministers do now to better prepare themselves and prepare um, of not only of processing what has happened, but prepare themselves to deal with the trauma that is next? Absolutely. It's such a good question. The first thing I think is just identifying and naming it. So often I think those of us who are in ministry who feel called to helping professions um, feel like we have to pretend that we are somehow, I talked about like the concentric circles of impact, that somehow we are outside those circles. And if we're not, we want to pretend we are because we think the only way we can care for congregations, for communities for our people is if we are unscathed and we come in from the outside and care for. If we have learned nothing else through the pandemic, which we've learned a lot, I'm good and bad, right? Um, that we have to learn and become, you know, figure out how to minister from the inner circles to the inter inner circles, right? That that we are not left unimpacted. And so one of the first things, and it sounds so simple, but I think we avoid it so much, is to admit that we are impacted too. Um, and so just just being ready to say, like, this is hitting me in this way. And I often talk with, with congregations and communities and clergy about figure out where you are in relation to the trauma and where your community is, because y'all might not be in the same place, right? It may be impacting you as a pastor more than it's impacting um, your community, or vice versa. Or you all might be in there together, right? Um, I have a, a clergy I met um, out in Colorado who the church and her house and her secretary's house and a church musician's house all burned in one of the fires. And none of the rest, most of the rest of the congregation, I shouldn't say none, were pretty unscathed. And so when they were going through the trauma of that loss and like the idea, like the rest of the congregation really struggled to lean in. And so it was a lot of coaching them to do that. So that's to say, how we prepare ourselves for it, I think... Um, building up networks of support become really, really important. And there's two kinds of networks I think clergy um, need. One is personal networks, right? Therapists, fellow clergy, friends, accountability partners, conversation partners for you. Um, that's why I love your, your confessional podcast, right? Like, you need someone to tell these stories to. Hopefully not anonymously, but maybe anonymously, right? The other form of support that I think is you start nurturing is communal connection. Knowing who your disaster relief folks are, knowing who your, you know, getting to know folks in the community or in your denomination who you can call upon when you need that support. Because so often the other thing is that trauma lies to us. Um, in many ways, but one of the big lies it tells, especially leaders, is your trauma makes you such an untouchable, unique flower of hurt that no one can accompany you. And so oftentimes we shut in on ourselves, especially as leaders, because A, we don't want our trauma to impact our congregation because we recognize that that can be problematic, although that's not an option anymore, which I'll get to in just a second. 
but also we start believing that somehow we are beyond help. And so to nurture those communities in advance, or as I like to say, in the in-between times, because there is no before trauma anymore, right? There never has been. But um, to think about these lulls in traumatic impact as chances to cultivate those relationships in those communities. I think the other thing is, um, and to go back to this idea of, of ministering from the inner circles to the inner circles is, um, I don't know about you, when I went to seminary there was a famous phrase that I was told once of multiple times, preach from your scars, not from your wounds. I don't know if you've heard that one. Well, I heard you say it the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the basic premise of it is good, right? That we want to, um, that we, we don't want to... Um, injure our congregation with our injuries, right? We don't want to turn them either into our therapists. However, I don't think that's possible all the time. And if we wait, we may not have the time for things to scar over. And so I think there, I, there's a difference, though, between preaching and ministering and pastoring with your wounds, meaning carrying them with you, allowing them to inform the work that you do, um, being honest about them with the people with whom you are in community. And I think that's healthy. I think it becomes problematic when we preach through, preach or teach or minister through our wounds, meaning that the only way we can see another's pain, the only way we can get that experience or recognize it is through our own pain. And I always advise folks that when you start recognizing that you can only preach or pastor or teach through the lens of your own pain, that's when it's time to call in a guest preacher. That's when it's time to, to take a sabbatical. That's when it's time to step away on medical leave and get the support that you need. Because I do think we can minister, you know, as, as wounded, wounded and yet holy people and called people. I mean, think about scripture, right? So many wounded people called to great things um, and great ministries. But that we need to be mindful of what we need so that we don't inadvertently injure our congregations through our woundedness. Well, our guest is the Reverend Dr. Kimberly Wagner, Assistant Professor of Preaching at Princeton Theological Seminary. You should purchase and read Fractured Ground, uh, which is available where books are sold. Kimberly, thank you for making time for Thank you so much. This was such a joy. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.